0: we just put a picture back up again that Christoph was asking, you know, about the, uh, the, the screen saver see there. You know, when we were on holiday in, in Vienna, we got to try those Segway things that you stand, those great waves. So that sort of reminds me of Gwen going down the main street in <laughs> <to> Vienna. <laughs> We've looked at the, the, the promised king. Um, the fact that the king is coming in the words of Psalm 110 Um, now chronologically it would make sense now to look at what happened when the king came Uh, and then to look at that that other great Christian doctrine of hope that the king is coming back Uh, but I decided that the stuff connected with the king coming back that Christoph has just read some of there Um, some of which applies to that, maybe isn't suitable for a family service, potentially out of doors on a Sunday morning, so we're switching things around a little bit, and I'm skipping now to look at the whole aspect, if you like, that uh, the king king is coming back, the the coming king uh, in the future. Just as the first advent was foretold by the scriptures, like Psalm 110, so too scriptures say a lot about the second advent, too. It's not the end of the world. I'm sure you've said that uh, to your children at uh, a time of great disappointment. I'm sure you've had it said to yourself. Uh, maybe not always the no most sensitive thing to say, but you know, a disappointing transfer test, exam result, the breakup of a romance an early world cup exit, Um, whatever it might happen, it's not the end of the world. How much do we think about the end of the world? I would hazard a guess, probably not very much. Maybe about 20, 30 years ago, uh, among certain Christian circles, there was a much more uh, acute and sometimes unhealthy interest in what theologians call eschatology, the doctrine of the end times. Thinking about the last days, you know, it's really quite popular. There's all sorts of quite weird literature going around. Um, I remember one pamphlet I remember when I was younger called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Is Coming Back in 1988. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't sewed too well recently. Uh, I mean, a bit of it around the time of the millennium, if you can remember that as well. Jehovah's Witnesses have been doing it for years. Uh, they've uh, had at least two wrong goes at it. It's always useful to remember that if they call it your door. Uh, and we've uh, got a lot of it maybe on some of the cable American TV shows, trying to predict the details about the end of the world by isolating and interpreting certain biblical prophecies and applying them to current events. Now, needless to say, I actually am not very interested in that um, I I believe that process to be futile, to be a total distraction from what the Bible is actually teaching us about the end times. But to try to link specific events with the war on terror or the demilitarization Mm -hmm. of the Gaza Strip or the world of oil crises and global warming and the price of onions in Venezuela or whatever it might happen to be uh, is not the most productive way to, to study scripture and can actually lead to a very unhealthy apocalyptic view of the end times which then in turn prevents us from living as the people of God here and now. So the fact that the subject doesn't come up much as it used to, and I remember coming up in things like CUs and youth fellowships and that, uh, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I would have one concern, and that is that if people are no longer obsessed or preoccupied about the details of the end of the world and the second coming, does that mean that actually we are so bound to the present that we don't think about the reality of it at all? Because while the Bible dissuades us from being caught up about the time and the hour and the day and the place and the manner, uh, Jesus and his ministry, not least in the passage that Christoph read for us, is clear that the reality should be very much in our thoughts and the its prospects should dominate our values and our life choices and our priorities. So if being too obsessed with the detail is foolish, then totally ignoring the reality that Jesus is coming back and that this world will end, totally ignoring that reality is for the Christian, I think, gross negligence. This is something we need to think about. The question is, how do you think about it helpfully? When you approach a passage like the one Christoph read, there's an immediate problem that becomes apparent because Jesus seems to be talking about different things, different periods. He seems to be talking in some language about the end of the world, you know, about the heavenly bodies and the sun and the moon and all of that crashing. Uh, And then he says that this generation shall not pass away until this happens. Then he's talking about Jerusalem. So does that mean that Jesus expected the world to end shortly after he spoke these words? Some people would say so. Uh, But there are obscure phrases like the time of the Gentiles. There's apocalyptic language about the sun and the moon and the stars. How literally are we meant to take this passage? And sometimes I think as we approach this, it can be very helpful for us to think in terms of a picture of our own. Uh, and what I want you to do, and you probably find this in your notes, what I want you to do this morning is to imagine a series of mountain peaks. Uh, one of the problems about approaching this teaching is that we struggle to or, or understand chronology, and sometimes things aren't even arranged chronologically. So I want you to think if you're climbing a mountain, and you know how it is. This used to kill me when I was in the the Morns or the Scottish Highlands or whatever. You think of climb that one over there, and you go, and you're looking ahead, and you say, ah, I'm not doing too badly. It's not just, just, just another couple of hundred meters. And then you get over their eyes, and there's another one. You get over that, and there's another one, and you realize that what looked like one thing was actually this series. And then when you get to the top, you look ahead, and you realize there are so many more mountains to climb if you're in this range, Uh, and in many ways I want you to think of this as a series of peaks a series of mountains separated maybe that they look similar they look from one perspective like all part of the same, same range but they could be separated by dozens and dozens of miles when you're in the midst of them when you're in the midst of the mountains you get a different perspective than you did at the foot of them So in Luke 21, I think that Jesus is looking from a distance. He's looking at this, what looks like this unified mountain range. We're looking at the territory that we call the future or the end. And I want us to grasp this because there's times in what he says he's referring to to the whole range together. And there's other times when he homes in on one of the peaks. And when we look at the, the verses that, that Christoph read for us, we want to see them also in context because the earlier, but as he explained, really from verses 8 on, um, is if you like the whole country, the general mountainous terrain, where constantly and continually this world and its fallenness and brokenness is winding down. And before it burns up, there will be wars and rumors of wars, revolutions, ecological, human, humanitarian disasters. These crises will typify life in the future that we are living now. This country known as the end days, the last days. He's not talking about a specific war or a specific famine or a specific earthquake, which is my problem with a lot of those cable TV shows, because I think a theologian in the 15th century or a theologian in the 4th century or the 1st century could have pointed to similar things. It's rather... Uh, the the, the stuff that's underfoot the soil of the land contains all of this he's neither saying also that these things are caused directly by God he leaves it that these things happen and he describes God interrupting this process with the coming of the son of man so the terrain of war and famine and earthquake can be seen as something that God wants to interrupt that is not the way he wanted things to be And the first peak, the very near peak, he mentions is the persecution that lay ahead for the disciples to whom he was speaking. Verses 12 to 19, just before what Christoph read. Betrayal, ostracism, persecution, death. And we know that that happened very quickly for them. And it continues to happen for Christians in parts of the world today. Tradition tells of how all the disciples apart from John were martyred for their faith. It happened to James. It was going to happen to Peter before any of them. Stephen, one of the early believers, was murdered within a matter of months of Jesus speaking these words. So there was the immediate peak of persecution for those disciples. But as Jesus continues, we see him speaking more specifically about some of the other peaks. And the next one was the unexpected and incredible fact That Jerusalem, their holy city, the place that showed that God was still with his people, was going to be totally destroyed. He emphasizes this by saying that they weren't to do what they would normally do in a crisis. They weren't to take refuge in the city, but he says take to the hills. The destruction will be so complete that there will be no respite even for the weak and the vulnerable. Those who marauding armies would sometimes have given mercy to and spared And Jesus chooses the most vulnerable, the nursing mothers and the unborn, and says that even they will not escape this evil that's going to happen. He uses words like distress and wrath and trample. He says there's going to be destruction here. And because the people had systematically rejected God's way, culminating in the rejection of God's King, Jesus, they could no longer be protected from the Gentile armies not that God is actively inflicting this on them, but he allows it to take its course because people were now not to be defined by ethnicity. The fact that they were a Jew would no longer save them. They were now to be defined by whether or not they were disciples of Jesus the Messiah. And when the city eventually fell in 87, they under Titus, in the war that would end dramatically at Masada, Jesus' words could be seen as fulfilled, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So it's at this point that things get complicated because as we move into the middle distance of the mountains we do so with the last words of verse 24 as the backdrop that Jesus says Jerusalem will fall and be trampled until the times of the Gentiles or the nations are fulfilled. Now the key to understanding that is that we take that phrase to refer to everything in the middle of these mountains everything that exists between the peak that's behind the destruction of Jerusalem and the distant summit of the final coming of the king which is mentioned in verse 25 you don't lump 20 to 24 with 25 Uh, 20 to 24 about Jerusalem and verse 25 is about the end because you have that half verse about the times of the Gentiles what does that mean? Is it that the Gentiles have a chance to hear the word of God? Is it a missionary era? Well, certainly it is. Ever since uh, uh, the Great Commission was preached, the word has gone out around the world to the Gentiles, from Paul and Peter onwards. Uh, And it has been characterized by missionary activity, but I'm not sure that that's the meaning here. Because Jesus wasn't so much speaking about the time that passes, what we call chronos, chronology. 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, you know, 2000 AD, 1900 AD, 1800 AD. He's not so much talking about the time that passes the chronos. Speaking in, that, in terms of that other biblical word for time, which is kairos, which means the right time for something to happen, the moment, having your moment, a God-given moment for something to take place, for some purpose to be fulfilled. <laughs> You see, Jesus wept over the city. He wasn't endorsing what was happening to Jerusalem. He mourned and grieved for it while he was here on earth. He simply showed what would happen if they rejected him. And then he makes it clear that just as Jerusalem's kairos, his time, his moment had come, so to eventually, further down the line, the Gentiles would have their moment of judgment for their sins. It's a pattern with the Old Testament prophets, Amos and Jeremiah, their articles against the nations. Everybody's time will come, including the Christian disciples, when we will have to all stand before the Son of Man, the coming King, in a place of judgment. That is the time that's being referred to, the time when we will have to stand before God. So currently, if we get back to the mountain range, we're living in the middle distance. We're living in the middle realms, the days of the Gentiles. Each year brings us closer to the next summit. Each year is a further year of grace, certainly. Each year certainly is a further year of opportunity to turn and to repent and to follow Christ. Because someday the distant summit is going to be right in front of us. Verses 25 to 27. Clearly describe a cosmic shake preceding the coming of Jesus and the clouds. Here we go to the distant summit. It's a different peak. It's a different event. It describes what happens when the time is fulfilled. It'll be a day that nobody can miss. There's no secret rapture here. There's an unmissable natural phenomenon culminating in the appearance with great glory of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Now look at the contrast in verse 28. In contrast to the advice given back in verse 21 where people were told to flee the destruction, to go to the hills, to try to escape this. The believing disciples here are told that when these things begin to happen, they are to do the opposite. Don't be afraid. Do what we wouldn't expect anyone to do. Stand firm, stand up, and lift up your heads. Be strong. Realize that this final coming judgment cannot touch you, your redemption is coming. Well, Monty, you say, it's "Really handy to get my head around some sort of chronology or timetable for this." But it's not Jesus' point. He does give a cryptic answer to that question, verse thirty-two. He says, "This generation shall not pass away until these things have happened." So what does that mean? That means it must have been happening very, very soon. Lots of people and spilt ink and scholars have spilt ink over what this means. This generation, does it mean the Jewish people? Does it mean the human race? Does it mean the gospel age? Does it mean all the period between Jesus' two comings? I think the natural reading of the text is to, to read generation in its normal sense. That is the generation to whom he was speaking. This generation. The people that were in front of him. So the issue isn't what does that mean? The issue is what does it mean all these things? What does it mean when he says they shall not pass away till they've seen all these things? And to understand that, we need to get back to the mountain range. Because Jesus and his hearers faced the big country, the big range called the future, peak after peak after peak. And they saw the first one, the imminent persecution, the second one, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the distant summits in the, in, in the background. All one country. And I think Jesus stands back here and having given all the instructions of the different peaks up to verse 27, he stands back and he gives them these instructions. Notice he says in verse 28, when these things begin to take place. In verse 31, when these things are happening, the kingdom is near. Verse 36, all that is about to happen, there is an indefinite timeline implied before it would be fulfilled. But this generation... This first generation would see it. They will enter the country, they will enter the future. And having entered it, all that is prophesied is sure to take place, even if they only experience the first couple of peaks. The kingdom age, once it has begun, is on a trajectory. It is moving an extra forward. Nobody can stop it. The final summit will be reached. Remember the story of Simeon in Luke chapter 2. It says that it had been promised to him that he would not taste death until he had seen the Christ. And in his song, the Nunc as he says, Lord, let your servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. But really? Had they? An eight-day-old baby? Simeon, the prophet, knew that now that the king had come, The kingdom was on a trajectory A momentum had begun that nobody could stop. Remember also the story of John the Baptist in prison. Having his doubts, sending his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for another? Because I'm in prison and this doesn't look much like the kingdom of God. Jesus says, tell John what you've seen. The blind see, the lame walk, the kingdom is preached to the poor. Now, did those things, the blind seeing and the lame walking, etc., did they in and of themselves constitute the whole of the redemption in the kingdom of God? No. Was there substitutionary atonement and a theology of forgiveness? Was it the end of evil and the overthrow of evil rulers? Quite obviously not. In John's experience, he was in prison, about to be executed. But the momentum had started. There was a trajectory begun that couldn't be reversed. And Jesus says to John, don't fall away. Just because you don't see it all yet. The kingdom is here. Like looking at the fig tree. And knowing that summer's coming. Verses 29 and 30. There's no fruit yet. There's no lazy hot summer days But the leaves are out. It's a new season. And so with these disciples and with us, they had crossed the border into the new land. They were in the country called the kingdom of God. So you see, I don't believe verse 32 applies to the second coming, which was the culmination, the final event of all the peaks and the range. In the context of the chapter in Matthew 24, where Jesus says the same things refers specifically to the destruction of Jerusalem, the evidence that a new era was beginning, not characterized by temples or sacrifices or circumcision or ethnicity, but a multi-ethnic gospel and a church that's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the thing, of course, that should really make this clear is how the sermon began in verse 5, and Christoph alluded to this. It began because the disciples were doing a little bit of arch- architectural appreciation, admiring the temple, And so Jesus' whole sermon begins to say, listen, stop focusing on that because that will be destroyed. That's disappearing. And this generation won't pass away until they see it. Well, Monty, if that's the case, you say, surely it's all in the past. We aren't concerned about the future of Jerusalem. I'm not concerned about a temple or ancient empires overthrowing small nations in the Middle East. What about us? Well, guys, the message for us is simply this. Look at the fig tree. The leaves are out. We're in the hill country. The early peaks are behind us. But as sure and certain that Jesus' words were true about the peaks that were behind us, so his words will be true about the peaks that are in front of us. They're reminders to us that as we go onwards and upwards towards the final peak of His second coming, there will be experienced by us and by our culture, just as certain as those early peaks, there will be experienced persecution and destruction and war and famines and earthquakes, and we're to see them as signs that there is a better kingdom. So how do we live? What Jesus tells us, doesn't he, in that chapter? He tells us in a couple of verses. He says, first of all, in verse 34, watch how you live. See, I didn't say that at the beginning, that the danger uh, is that, uh, you know, by not thinking too much about the timetable of the end of the world, that we forget about it altogether, then we've got to be careful. That, we, that doesn't mean that we're indifferent to how we live. It's even more wrong, you see, if you live as if the second coming isn't going to happen. We need to watch our hearts, says Jesus. We're not to live carelessly, thoughtlessly, just going from one sensory experience to the next. That's why his first two uh, examples are dissipation and drunkenness. The uber-party lifestyle, I guess. Living one day at a time, eating and drinking and being married because, hey, tomorrow we might die. Nowhere to live, not like those who have no hope. The one thing the doctrine of the second coming should give us is hope. A hope that no one else has. You see, the assurance is, as we're in this mountain range, that we are progressing towards a definite ending. We live as people of hope. Significant, I think, that the first pitfall that Jesus highlights is the uh, dissipation and drunkenness. Not because that's the only sin Jesus was aware about, not because it was the worst sin, but simply because it's the best illustration in this context. Drunkenness, more than anything else, displays a lack of hope, a lack of concern about tomorrow when you'll have your headache, a lack of concern about the future, but another living in the sensory present. It's the first resort of those who have no direction or purpose. It's readily available, it's easy to thoughtlessly resort to it. First port of call in a crisis. It's such a feature of teenage life and temptation because, well, yes, there's an element of bravado, there's an element of make-believe maturity, but basically it's insecurity and lack of hope, lack of confidence in who they are without some artificial stimulant. The need for something to make them strong, popular, desired, brave. Any artificial stimulant that can do that will be embraced And it was fascinating to me that when I went to my 25 year school reunion, that 25 years later, an awful lot of the people couldn't face seeing their school friends again without first having got tanked up a little bit to give themselves some Dutch courage. And the second application is don't live carelessly, don't live burdened lives. For resorting to drunkenness and any other stimulant simply increases the burden, the weighing down. The word in in the Greek is bareo, an image of being weighed down so much that we lose our sensitiveness. We stop feeling, we escape reality. We are anxious. And when we're anxious, we can't see the next peak. We can't see beyond the moment. We can't see beyond the next day or hour. We've lost sight of the mountains. We're so caught up in the cares of this world, that we don't remember that we're living in the shadow of those peaks that are behind us and the great peak that is in the front of us, the kingdom of God. People of hope don't live anxiously. They know that the things that are causing them concern are not the end of the world. Folks, I know for a fact that in this congregation there are those who live anxiously, There are those who live burdened lives. There are those who live carelessly. Do you know how I know? Because I'm one of them. There's days I worry. There's days I worry about my health, about my ability to do my job, about my lack of spiritual fervor. There are times I'm burdened by the expectations of others. The need to impress or to be liked. I'm burdened by all sorts of loads that are carried by people I know and love who are going through seemingly <coughs> intractable problems. There's times I look carelessly, careless about what I say, careless about how I treat others, careless about what I think, about what I look at, about the choices I make. There's times I turn or am tempted to turn to other things to satisfy other than Christ. There's times I can't see the mountains. There's times I can't see the kingdom. And I can't see the kingdom because I've lost sight of the king. And I'm sure many of you are like me. The wrong response is to beat ourselves up about it and feel ever more guilty. The correct solution is to look up and see the mountains. And that's why this passage ends with a warning and an encouragement. The warning is always to stay alert and pray, verse 36. Pray that the fog will lift so that you can see the reality of the peaks ahead of you, the bigger picture, the kingdom picture. And the encouragement to stand tall. Stand up, verse 28, and lift your heads with hope, with confidence, not in yourself, but confidence in the King. It's interesting, isn't it, that In one part of the passage, Jesus tells people to flee to the mountains. But here, in anticipation of the final judgment, he says, hold your heads high. What makes the difference? Why are those of us who, to use this morning's earlier analogy, those of us who are in the safe place, those of us who are in the free place, those of us who are resting and hiding in Christ, who are children of the King, why is it that we are able to stand with confidence on the day when others are fleeing to the mountains. Well, a number of years ago, when the California bush fires were destroying vast swaths of land in that state, I saw a clip of a property that had been spared the fire of the inferno. Everything around it was burnt to a shell, but this one particular house survived, and there was a picture of the family standing outside their property. What had happened? was that while the fire was still many kilometres away, they had set a controlled fire off in their garden and they had burnt all the scrubland around their house so that when the fire reached them, it couldn't burn what was already burnt and it swept round the property, saving the house in the middle. There was a picture of them standing on their scorched lawn with them and their house safe from what had happened all around them. Essentially, what happened on the cross was that God let the judgment fall on himself in Christ. The fire fell on him rather than us, so that when God's righteous and fair judgment on the evil of humanity falls on our cruel world, all who stand on him are spared the judgment that should have fallen on them too and it passes over because it has fallen with Christ. That's why in verse 36 we will be able on that day to stand before the Son of Man because we'll be standing in Christ, hiding safely in the one who has already experienced the judgment of God and since he has experienced it, we don't have to. Can you stand before God? If not, why not? If we live lives characterized by hope, with our eyes fixed on Jesus and on his return, we long for that distant faith. We live in expectation of the sure and certain hope of the resurrection and the coming of Christ. Like Paul at the end of his life. Do you remember those famous words? Maybe we skip over the significance of the last phrase. He says at the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. You remember that bit? And then he says this, There now awaits for me the crown of righteousness, and not only for me, but for all who, what? Who make the grade, Or all who run the race faster than everybody else? No. The promise is simple. The crown of righteousness, not only for me, but for all who long for his appearing. It's the prize for those of us who live with joyful expectation that our king is coming back to reign in the midst of the brokenness of our world. And the earthquakes and the famines and yes, the floods and the suicide bombs and the earth crashes and the railway accidents and everything else that typifies our inability to control this world no matter how we try to tame it or make it better and slicker and faster and more convenient. A world that is simply spiraled out of control In the midst of all this, we can live as children of the kingdom, seeking the redemption of our world, but doing so in the light of Christ and in the fact that He is returning. And in the midst of all that, we can stand. He is true to His words. His words did come true and they will come true. He is coming back. Lift up your heads and stand strongly in him. Let us just to reflect a little bit on both the sessions this morning and what we have learned in terms of our uh, our kingship of Jesus. And uh, As we reflect, I want to ask Gwen uh, to sing, and for all of us as you get to know it to join in, uh, it's a it's a song to a tune you probably know, uh, a Ar- traditional Irish tune called Carrie Fergus," uh, and uh, as I said, I'm sure it's familiar. But make this our response, our reflection on the King that was promised, the King who came, and the King who's coming back. Oh. We shall
1: bring joy. We give you praise.